0: So we've been working our way line by line through the Lord's Prayer week by week. Has this series been a blessing to you? Has it been helpful to kind of break the thing down? And it's almost like having a nice, big, fat, juicy steak. You know, you cut the thing up and you take a bite and just savor the bite. That's sort of what we've been doing for the last several weeks. And in fact, we focus on several different nuances of the prayer, including, like we said a minute ago, the idea that God calls us To call him father and we are his kids his name remains holy and separate from ours he remains sovereign just like uh kim walker smith sang for us earlier he's sovereign over every step he remains the sovereign or the king over everything and yet our king calls us to call him father that makes you and me princes and princesses in the kingdom of god and we pray along those lines that god's kingdom come but we don't ask him that his kingdom come from far off as if it were out there coming someday. The kingdom, in fact, has already come. It's kind of a now, not yet nuance where the kingdom of God has come through us and is coming in us and through us every single day, reaching out and expanding to those who need Jesus. But it's also the kingdom's fruition comes when Jesus returns on the clouds. The scripture says he's going to come again and he's going to redeem the whole rest of the world. Same kind of work that he's doing right now. On those days, God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we don't wait until then. We ask him for that now, because his kingdom is coming through you and me. And then along with that, we depend on him for daily bread. The daily bread is more than just the bread we eat, right? It's also the jobs we work, the clothes we wear, the houses that we are blessed with, the cars we drive and the fellowships and the companionship that we have in the church and around us. We ask God to forgive us our sins or our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that idea that we live in an atmosphere of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the oil that makes the engine of the kingdom of God run. And so when we embrace forgiveness, not only receiving it from God, but also letting that forgiveness pass through us to other people, then that's how the kingdom of God grows is people learn and understand that it's not because of how good they are, but for how good Jesus is, that that good news is available to them, just like it's available to you and me. So then here we go into one of the toughest and most difficult teachings in all of Christianity as a companion to forgiving our debtors as we forgive debts. It's the idea of wrangling with temptation. Now, I'm not going to ask you if you were tempted this morning. I'm going to ask you what you were tempted to do this morning. Because sometime this morning, you were tempted to do something. You were tempted to do something that perhaps you could call sin. Or you could call it something maybe that looks sinful. Maybe you were tempted to eat brownies instead of your eggs for breakfast. Maybe you were tempted to think of somebody differently than God thinks of them. Maybe you were tempted to say something first thing this morning when you stubbed your toe on the kitchen table making breakfast. Whatever the case may be, you know that we as Christ followers live in a constant state of temptation. And that's why Jesus includes it in his prayer. Because he knows that temptation is a common uh, experience that we have every single day as Christ followers. And so he calls us to lift up the temptations that are in front of us to enter into sin, to turn those temptations over to him, and to deal with evil and sin in a way that's appropriate for a member of the kingdom of God. Now, before we get into this teaching, we need to understand and know and receive the truth that we don't earn our way into the kingdom of God. We say that often here at Trinity. The way into the kingdom of God has been earned for us by who? By Jesus and we trust in him to be the perfect one and at the same time as we follow him we know that we're going to enter into temptation and we also know that God can handle the temptations for us and through us now what if we took the other nuances of the prayer like daily bread and the forgiveness of sins which we now understand to be partly about us but also to be partly about those around us and extend that idea to temptation and dealing with evil. Here's what I mean. What if God is allowing your growing practice of temptation management to be a function of the good news of the coming kingdom of God in you and through you to somebody else who doesn't have strategies for managing temptation, sin, and evil. Maybe you've got somebody in your life who doesn't have a relationship with God yet, but struggles with life. I would submit that you're surrounded by people like that. You don't have to have all your ducks in a row for your own temptation management system in order to be a part of the functional kingdom of God which is growing and sharing the good news that God can even handle temptation, evil, and sin in our average everyday lives. You see, there's a lie that's perpetrated by the evil one out there. That we need to be perfect in order to be members of the kingdom of God. And somehow we need to be masters of ourselves and our temptations in order to be Christians or Christ followers. That couldn't be further from the truth. And the evidence of that begins with the Lord's Prayer, which Jesus kept simple enough for a three-year-old to memorize. We've been talking about how little kids pray the Lord's Prayer at chapel all around the country and the world every single day. What I want to do is dive back into the scripture that Linda shared with us a few minutes ago. If you have a Bible or if you have your phone and you want to go to Version or just Google it, look for James chapter 1 verses 12 through 18. I'm going to use a slightly different version, I asked Linda to read the ESV, the English Standard Version, I'm going to read from and teach from the NIV, the New International Version. A couple of nuances in there, but what I want you to pay attention to are some key words. The Bible says blessed. What is blessed? Is blessed lucky? No. Blessed is the favor of God. Blessed is like an environment of God's favor. It's like the last time you got into a hot tub and submerged yourself all the way up to your eyeballs and just lay there and enjoyed the warmth of that. It's like an environment. It's like being enveloped in a state of blessing from God. Blessed is an atmosphere of favor of God. And here's what the scripture says about that. It says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial or temptation Because having stood the test, the person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, for a minute there, if we stop and misunderstand the scripture, we might be tempted to think that we have to earn a crown of life in the kingdom of God based on our performance in our management system of temptation. That's a misunderstanding. We have been given new life through Jesus. But there's a nuance associated with the crown of life that we could stand to step away from and just take a look at. If you look back in history, particularly if you look at Greek and Roman history, you find that when somebody would be successful competing in games like, uh, you know, sort of like the gladiators, you know, when there would be professional games going on, and there would be somebody who would be a victor in the games. or Uh, a a military leader is is victorious in a military campaign. They would be awarded this crown that was often made of like oak leaves or different kinds of plants that were woven together and placed on their heads, kind of like our friend Julius Caesar pictured here on the right and some random dude on Etsy pictured on the left. Now, the random dude from Etsy pictured on the left is modeling a gold-looking oak-leaf crown for probably a costume party, maybe even a toga party. I don't know. But Julius Caesar, over there on the right, would actually have worn one of these things. Why? Because he was a military leader who was successful and had the right to wear this crown, which some would call the crown of life. It's a victorious symbol. It's a symbol of victory. And a a military leader who wore the crown of life could just that same week or month go back into warfare and lose. And so the crown might be removed, right? But having the crown on the head symbolized that there was a victory after a battle. And so what James is referring to here is the idea that we are in a daily battle where we live in a state of blessedness through faith in Jesus, but we still struggle with temptation. We struggle with the idea that temptation comes and tempts us away from God, setting us up for spiritual loss. Temptation is designed to try to entice you away from God's sovereignty in your life. When God is sovereign over your life, and you're faced with temptation, you know that you're faced with a choice. Am I going to continue to submit myself to my sovereign God and love Him and follow Him with my ways? Or am I going to be enticed to look at another sovereign? Some other thing, some habit, some sin, some force that's going to try to pull me away from the God who loves me, pull me out of that kingdom. The reason I show you a crown of thorns It's because someone we love dearly and follow wore a crown of thorns as he was being persecuted and as he was headed toward the cross, right? This crown of thorns was kind of a mockery of the victor's crown. And the Bible says that when it was squashed down on his head, those thorns would have pierced into his skin and caused him to bleed, right? It wouldn't be the last time he would bleed for us, would it? But for us, we see this crown as a crown of true victory. Because Jesus is the one who overcame temptation in the desert. Went to the cross. And instead of despairing, called out to his father. Committed his spirit to him. And then three days later did what? Rose again. So on that third day you could kind of say this crown of thorns was a true victor's crown. But for people listening to James, they would have had the context of victory in mind when the words crown of life would have been shared with them. It's the idea of being victorious. Getting through your life in victory This is the idea that's portrayed for us in the scriptures, and this is how that works. If you look a little bit further into the scripture, the Bible says this very pragmatically. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Did you ever think about that? Did you ever realize that when you're being tempted to sin, God is not actually putting that temptation in front of you? He's not to blame. Who is to blame? Well, we live in a world that is subject to sin. Sin is anything that doesn't please God or doesn't work as a part of his kingdom. Sin is anything that propagates us bowing down to another king other than the king who made us and saved us. And living in a world that is full of this kind of sin for the time being We're going to be exposed to temptation to skip out of the kingdom of God and join other kingdoms. Those kingdoms might be the kingdoms of cheating, the kingdoms of lying, the kingdoms of lusting, the kingdoms of uh, hurting others or impeding others or holding others down. The scripture calls that oppressing others. These are true kingdoms of the world. And when the prayer refers to the kingdom of heaven coming into the kingdom of earth. God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's talking about the kingdom of God in battle with these opposing kingdoms of the world. And what God calls us to is to understand that he is not the source of those temptations. He's not the source of the evil behind them. He's not a great puppet master in the sky dangling good and evil over you to see which one you're going to pick. He is the giver of all good things. And the king of this world, also known as Satan, who's in charge of all those other kingdoms we named a few minutes ago, he is at war with our king. But we must understand something clearly from the very beginning. God does not tempt us. God does not play with us. God is not puppet mastering us and manipulating us for some evil pleasure. God is the one who gives good. We simply live in an atmosphere in a world now in the kingdoms of this earth that are captivated captivated by other false kings. Many of them could be just simply called Satan and his forces and his armies. But here's what happens to us in verse 14. Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth death. See, what happens with, with us when you and I are conceived before we're even born, we have what's called, the theologians would call a sinful nature. So there's a proclivity inside of us to choose the other kingdoms of the world rather than to choose to be with God. And when we're conceived, we're conceived in sin, which is a barrier between us and a holy God. And through Jesus, we grow up into the faith and we learn that in fact, because of Jesus, we not only have access to the kingdom of God, but because of trusting in Jesus, we become members of the kingdom of God fully-fledged members, fully-vested members of the kingdom of God, who will from that point forward until death, struggle with sin. And that is why we meet, and that is why we pray, and that is why we sing, and that is why we put the scripture in front of us. Because we will have temptation come, and we will have temptation dig its fingers into the very cracks and crevices of our soul so many different ways that we cannot understand and expect we'll be taken by surprise but the good news is every single day that Jesus has been victorious over that sin he bears the crown of life for us and by faith in him he gives us that crown of life that crown of victory through mere faith, especially when we're faced with temptation. So what does that do for us? How does that help us to form a management system against temptation? Well, part of that has to do with remembering who we are. Think about this. Scripture says even further, Don't be deceived, dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change, In other words, he doesn't vacillate from evil to good, tempting us with evil and then moving over to the good side. He's always on the side of good and perfection and holiness. He doesn't change. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now, bear with me in this. What are first fruits? How many farmers do we have in the room? Just raise your hand if you're a farmer. I'm saying that facetiously because we don't have any farmers in the room, okay? If we had a farmer in the room, and let's say it was a farmer from 2,000 years ago, and the farmer produced a crop, what would the first fruits of the crop be? They would be a gift to God, if we're a member of God's kingdom, or in pagan cultures, they even practice this as well, they would take a portion of the best produce of the crop and they would give it over to the God they believed in. We consider that in our day and time similar to tithing or giving offerings, which we collect here every single week in the name of God. It's the idea that there's been a crop produced in humanity and the crop is you. There's a crop of faith that's been produced. And that crop is being handed over to the world for God's purposes. You see, we are the first fruits of all of God's creation. God made the whole world. And because of sin, the whole world has been subject to decay and death and falling apart. But because of Jesus, there will come a day when he will come back and redeem the entire world. Claim his entire kingdom. And the best news is, is he doesn't wait until the end of times to do that. He does that every single day in you and in me. It's like this. If we consider who we are in that story and in that big picture... We understand that through faith, we are not the old people that we were in the world. Bound to the kingdoms of this earth. We are new. We're a new creation. God has remade us. He has killed off the old and given birth to something new through faith. The old you, the old Paul, he's dead. Kiss him goodbye. Even when tempted, the old Paul is gone. It is the new Paul who is tempted. Eric, the old you, he's history. There's nothing left of him. He's gone. Even the very youngest of us, trusting in Christ, die to our old selves and are reborn again with a brand new life. This gives us a new identity. And if we understand and reason and accept the idea that we were not reborn in the kingdom of God merely for ourselves, but we were also born in the kingdom of God for the kingdom of God's sake as well, then we can endure temptation through the Holy Spirit's power in us, understanding whose we belong, who we belong to, whose kingdom we're a member of, And we can turn and share that with someone else who doesn't know yet who they are. I would submit that there are people all around you who have an identity crisis. They don't understand that God made them. They don't understand that God died for them and rose again for them. And they don't understand that God has an abundant life planned for them and purposed for them. And He will use your life, the life that faces temptation, even the new versions of us, He will use your life to show what that looks like in the real world. That's what it means to be firstfruits. God is harvesting you. He's plucking you up. He's bundling you together with others who are firstfruits in His kingdom. And He's giving you back to the world on a silver platter. He's putting you out there so that people can see what it means to follow Jesus in real time, what it means to face temptation. And even when we fail and fall, God picks us right back up because of Jesus' victory. And when we succeed, it's because of God working in us and through us. Now I don't know about you, But that gives me a brand new perspective on that crown. When I'm faced with temptation, it's like Satan is putting a crown of thorns on my head and squashing it down and causing me to be uncomfortable and even to bleed. But then we understand that the one who first wore that crown of thorns conquered death and conquered the sin that came before death and conquered the enticement that came before sin and conquered the enticement and sin, that came before temptation. And in fact, conquered temptation itself. 40 days in the desert without food. Jesus is victorious over all that. So when we're faced with temptation, the temptation to cheat, the temptation to lie, the temptation to lust, the temptation to oppress, the temptation to do all these other things that are not part of the kingdom, we remember these words. People in the scripture have been tempted and failed and been reborn again over and over and over for generations. The book of Hebrews addresses us like this in that light. It says, since we've been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, other people who are loved by God and in his kingdom, who've been tempted and failed and recovered and lived to tell about it. Since we are surrounded by all those people, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that's so easily entangled. It's like we're taking that crown of thorns off our heads, ripping that skin out, saying, ow, that hurts, but throwing it off. Because Jesus has worn that one and been done with it. And receiving instead something else. The scripture says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes not on our own efforts. Not on our own success. Not on our own power. Not on our own circumstances. But only on one thing. And that is on Jesus. Jesus who bore the faith, who endured temptation, who wore the crown, and who conquered death. And when that happens, when we trust that, we trust that, there is a joy that we receive through Him and from Him, when He endured the cross, scorning its shame, what does that mean? Laughing in the face of the shame of the cross, where He hung naked. And humiliated with the crown of thorns on his head. He laughs at that because he's conquered it. And he sits down at the right hand of the throne of God interceding for you and for me. Praying for us. Advocating for us. Consider him, the scripture says. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's the idea that we focus on Jesus in the moment of temptation. When you're tempted again, simply apply this strategy. There aren't six steps to it. There aren't 14 steps to it. There's one step. And the step is just to see Jesus. See Him with that crown of thorns on. Follow His example. But more than that, Understand that the power to resist temptation doesn't fall on your shoulders. It falls on his. And he was victorious over it. The crown of life comes from him. When you resist temptation, the devil will flee. And your king will return to your vision, and to your memory, to your heart strengthen you, remind you who you are, whose you are, and what place you are in the world. As a full-fledged member of the kingdom of God. So that's why when we say, focus on Jesus, we're simply following what's written in the scripture. When it says, consider him. Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, we consider you now. We consider your victory over temptation. We consider your victory over the enticement of evil. We consider your victory over sin. And we consider your victory over death that followed it. God, you have claimed us as your people, as your children. And you go before us as a victorious king. One who has conquered every little temptation. So God, I admit before you right now. In front of all these people and with their prayers of agreement. That there are times when I lust in my heart. There are times when I call people names in my heart. There are times when I ridicule other people in my heart. There are times when I steal things in my heart. There are times when I do the despicable in my heart. And you come along and save me from that. Every single time. Now, sometimes I pursue those things, God. Sometimes I dig into that crown of thorns with all my might and I squash it under my own head as if that were my crown. But I thank you that you remind me to throw off that crown, to pitch it away as far as I can through your power and your strength so that you may replace it with a crown of a different kind. One that is perfect in you. I thank you, and I love you, and I praise you. And I worship you now for all the good that you are. In your name we pray, and together we say, amen.